You're listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit Irreverent FM for more content from my friends. Hello, hello, and welcome to Bad Words, an ex-evangelical podcast where we give toxic theology the read that it deserves by taking another look at some of the books that have been given major influence in evangelical Christianity. I am Janice Legata, and this is a meeting of the Bad Book Club. We are reading The Bait of Satan by John Bevere, biting into it one chapter at a time. I'll read the opening paragraph and give a few thoughts, and then join one of the members of the Bad Book Club for a discussion. In the end, I'll read the closing paragraph and give some closing thoughts, all with the intention of leaving you free to think your own thoughts about the chapter, the book, and all things really so. Without further ado, let's get into... Chapter 13, Escaping the Trap. And herein do I exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Acts 24, 16. It takes effort to stay free from offense. Paul compares it to exercising. If we exercise our bodies, we are less prone to injury. While in Hawaii, I climbed a wall to take a picture. When I did, I pulled a group of muscles in my knee and could not walk for four days. If you had been exercising regularly, the physical therapist told me, this would not have happened. Because your muscles are out of shape, you are prone to injury. So here we are in chapter 13, and this might be the quickest that John has gotten right to his point. He tells a story about getting hurt because he hadn't been exercising, and spoiler alert, he's about to blame every other hurt on people who haven't been exercising their don't-get-hurt muscles. You know that saying, hurt people hurt people? Well, the Bevere translation says hurt people hurt their damn selves. And you know what? There are conversations to be had about the way old injuries leave us susceptible to new ones, but this chapter is not having that conversation. This chapter is saying that getting hurt is inevitable, but feeling hurt is a choice that you're making. It feels so redundant to say this, but this book is bad. This theology is awful. It's dangerous and completely unhealthy. Using John Bevere's advice to try to heal from hurt is like drinking bleach to kill COVID or drinking bleach to kill any sickness, including spiritual sicknesses like offense and unforgiveness, because it'll work by killing you too. And honestly, I don't think John Bevere would mind. His dream Christian is basically a zombie, just a mindless thing walking around infecting other people and ruining things. So grab your weapon of choice as we take a stroll with The Walking Dead with book club member number 13. I am Cortland Coffey. I am just a guy with no particular title, which feels great, to be honest. And I was in ministry for a lot of years. I was a part of a very, very controlling cult-like church plant organization, which come to find out is way more common than I ever would have thought. You know, I always tell people I was in a cult and they're like, which one, you know, like I would like, there's three of them, you know, and they all have Netflix documentaries about them. And I'm like, nah, you haven't heard of this one. We were, we were not that successful. We didn't have like a billionaire uh, funding, you know, our real estate purchases or anything. But yeah, came out of that a few years ago and then uh, started engaging in the community of people online who were talking about similar experiences. So yeah, so I got a podcast like every other, you know, white guy out here, unfortunately. But yeah, I'm I'm more than anything, I guess my my core credentials is I'm a huge Janice fan. So that's that's really the biggest and and the main thing you need to know going in. And yeah, I think your podcast was the first podcast I guessed it on. So cool. 
Cool. Awesome. I'm putting that on like our byline. That's going like in our intro text. It's legit, you guys. Thereafter, get cool. get into it. Get so, into it. So I dragged Cortland into into this because I would have wanted to talk to him anyway. But I I especially wanted to get get some men, just like in church world, women always step up, and this could have easily just been an all women thing, and that would have been fine too. But this is a book written by a man. At this point, I would say for men, it is a very manly, masculine book. So yeah, so I wanted I wanted to get some guys. So Cortland, Cortland, and I reached out to specifically, like, hey, come on my podcast, man, get get yeah. over here and share. I'm happy some- to do it. Happy to do it. And I think John, do you know how to say his last name? Bavir. Bavir. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I was I've been fucking it up. Anyway, can I can I rhymes, say it on this? rhymes with okay? absolutely. Rhymes okay. with severe. Severe. <laughs> severe. I think he's a Colorado Springs guy. I think that he, at least in the majority of it, I don't know if he's still down there, but I try to Thank avoid you. Colorado Springs. It's, <laughs> it's a triggering place, but that's uh, that's just down the street from me. I'm in Denver. so That's right. Yeah. yeah. You're neck of the woods. Yep. Unfortunately accurate. Yeah. All right. So... The Bait of Satan. When did you first become aware this book existed? When you sent it to me. All right. <laughs> so you were uninitiated I, altogether. Yeah, I I was a, aware of him and his ministry. I, at one point in my ministry days, hung with uh, Ted Haggard, who was kind of the king of Colorado Springs and charismatic church ministry stuff. So, uh I was I was aware of of John Bevere, but I never never consumed any of his stuff. I was a little bit more in the Bill Hybels, uh, Andy Stanley kind of lane, and less in the 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 charismatic lane. A gentler, yeah, it's a gentler side of side of things. So how did how did you feel about the prospect of reading part of this book? I didn't know what to expect. This was the first like Christian, like very Christian book that I have read since I was in church. And so I didn't know what I was going to think going into it. I was prepared for lots of triggers and prepared to to be confounded <laughs> <laughs> about what was being said. And I, I think it's interesting because there was, although I was not a charismatic, a super charismatic uh, person, I definitely did run in lanes with people who were very much in kind of the, you know, Mike Bickle, House of Prayer, like that type of thing. And to be honest, I always like was kind of jealous of those types of people that like felt like they could like kind of embrace this kind of like magical charisma versus the more kind of like, you know, khakis and button up types that I was doing church with. And so, yeah, I did. I had I I didn't know what to expect. So what chapter did you have? Oh, man, what was the name of this chapter? It was have all my notes spread out here. Oh, yeah. Escaping the trap. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that was it. Escaping the trap. What was this chapter about? Oh, God, that's a hard question. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I mean, it, it was, it was about basically how you get unoffended once you're offended. And I don't know if this is the only chapter in the book that talked about that. Does the, the rest of the book 
mostly talk about avoiding offense? You would think, but no. Okay. No, really, because, I mean, one one of my many, many issues with the book is, well, first of all, the premise that offense, that offense is this, this sin. Um, so, I mean, his point throughout the book, it can't really be about avoiding it because he's very much like, no, you're going to be offended. Like, yeah, it's so gonna it's happen. not about, yeah, it's going to happen. So the whole book is, is really just dealing with it, just kind of accepting that it's going to happen. Here are the different ways it's going to happen. And then, yeah, how you just need to not not feel what you're feeling. Yeah, don't do it, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's going to happen, but don't do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> the most Christian wisdom I've ever heard. And then this chapter, like, he just goes all the way home with it to where, no, here's basically you just have to get over it. Yeah. I, you know, my thoughts, my thoughts initially were that I, I feel like reading this, it, it, it makes me realize how nonspecific Christian advice is because there was no real specific rubber meets road, tangible, like instruction in the whole thing. The whole thing just was like this kind of like very ambiguous top level nod to assumed belief about these things, you know, these big concepts like forgiveness. Right. So you're like you're 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 given a situation of like you're offended. You need to forgive. That's the answer. You know, and it's like but there's no real practical or specific application about what any of that means and so i really think it's like it's not being in it now reading it i was left every single thing he said going but what does that what does that mean what does any of this mean so that was my reaction initially yeah because this whole chapter is about forgiveness but another another one of my issues i'm like again it's this assumed i'm saying forgiveness and we all know what this means there's no definitions like at no point, not in this chapter, not in the book, does he say, here's what forgiveness is. Here's here's what it looks like. Walking away from this chapter, I'm like, this is just blind. I release you from what you did to me. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and now things will go back to the way they were. Like everything's fine. Like just yeah. forget about it. It's fine. And that, like this this is one of those chapters where I was like, oh, this this was written by a man for men because like they're not not that terrible things can't happen to men so many awful things happen to women and for this to just be sorry like you just have to get over it it's so it's mean and it's dangerous like this is this is a dangerous a dangerous book altogether but some of these chapters i'm like oh these are just dangerous chapters yeah, and it's with that ambiguity, like you could make his points say almost anything that you want them to. And I find that I have this oftentimes when reading Christian anything is that I tend to think about it in the context of the sins of the church and the sins of Christianity and like actively reading and applying it to those things <laughs> like you could actively turn exactly what he says around and given other context, use it to talk about like the church's treatment of the LGBTQ community. Right. 
But but again, there's all this assumed context that's like, oh, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about fitting this particular behavioral mold that everyone is agreeing to from the start. And this is just basically rhetoric to get people to get in line and take their place. So that's that that was the biggest thing that kind of came off and like had me thinking like this this again this is just getting people back into a position of assumed belief um correct belief and you know using a lot of flowery spiritual language to really assert authority that is not really grounded in any type of specific reality and it is a very it's just so vague. Page 146, when he talks about an incident occurred in my life involving someone in the ministry. And I wrote, I was like, what, what incident, John? You have a whole fucking book and you have been so vague. Like you suck. Like you're not, this is your book. You can literally tell us the story. What is this book about? Like, why, why, John? Yeah. Why? And I, I highlighted the, in the, in the preface, which you sent over to me as well, he talked about the the two ways that offense can happen. One way being those who have been unjust, uh, those who have been uh, treated unjustly, right? Or two, those who believe they have been treated unjustly. People in the second category believe with all their heart that they have been wronged, but often their conclusions are drawn from inaccurate information or their information is accurate, but their conclusion is distorted. And I don't know if he gives a specific example of when that may have happened to him. But in this circumstance, he doesn't define this offense in either one of those categories or give us any details as to which one of the categories this might be. Right. Which makes you go like, I don't know exactly. Then that's a pretty big difference, right? You're going to handle that situation very differently depending on which category you fall in. You lead up in your preface that these are the categories of offense and you're not even going to reference those categories when explaining a time when you were offended. Right. <laughs> it's so wild. Right. And that's that's the whole book. Like there's no no kind of clarity. It's all we all we all know what I'm talking about and we all agree. So just just take what I'm telling you. And, and run with it in the way that I'm telling you to. Because mm-hmm. for a lot of this book, there's so many things. There's like, oh, like he gets he gets so close. Or it's that thing where, yeah, well, John, if you just turn the camera around, you would see that what you're saying applies to you in a way that you don't want it to, which is why you won't turn the camera around. Yeah. I mean, the, it's just crazy that you would write a book about people not getting offended instead of dealing with people offending people. That's that. That's wild. Yeah. What do you think? The what do you think? You've read the whole book. What do you think the practical application of like? What do you? Why do you think somebody writes a book like this? I guess is my question. I don't know why John Bevere is a mystery to me. I honestly don't know why he wrote this book. I think I know why it got platformed the way that it did. Like I don't know. I still haven't heard from anyone who saw this book in the bookstore and picked it up of their own volition. Like, oh, this looks interesting. Like everyone who's come into contact with this book, who read it, it was given to them by the men- their ministry or a ministry group. And it was like a, a group thing. We're going through this book together. Like it has been a very useful tool in getting people to fall in line. Like 
even the testimonies in this book, a lot of them are of, oh, our church was about to split or something was going on in the church. And then we read this book and things were fine. So it's like, it's when people start rising up, when people start having some thoughts, having some issues, then this book is brought in to, to, to tamp that down. Um, But why he wrote it? I don't know. I think, I mean, he wrote this book. It was first released in 94. And so he was mid, mid thirties at that point. And he had grown up, as far as I know, from the information not available on Wikipedia. Um, He grew up in the ministry. So I feel about him at that age, kind of the same way I felt about Joshua Harris. Like, I think you came up in this and you're just regurgitating what you've been told. And like, you're trying to, to be a good soldier. I think you're obviously getting hurt. Like you have, you reference all these vague incidents of bad things happening in ministry and your leaders being bad leaders. So I think he was probably dealing with a lot of stuff and trying to make that dissonance not be as dissonant. So I think this was his way of trying to fix that, which I can understand. You can probably understand too. When you're, I feel this, but they're telling me it's wrong to feel this. So it's gotta be me. So what can I do to fix this? Cause that's what this book is. It's like, yeah, I feel hurt, but I'm not supposed to feel hurt. So that's on me. So now yeah. I have, found, I have found the way not to feel this and I'm going to tell everybody else the way. But it's, I don't know, it's not even, it's like junk science, but there's no science. It's just junk. Yeah. That I mean, like, like all these places, and I have like all these different places that, again, he just comes to no conclusion in, in telling the story. But he talks about David and relates himself to David and says, I can identify with David, in my opinion, the man and some of his associates. Again, just like this, like super vague man and associates who had harmed me or offended me had rewarded me evil for good. And my soul was definitely in sorrow. But like all of those words, there's something like, what was the evil? And what was the good? What was the good that you did? What was the evil done to you? What was that sorrow like? It it it, it just lacks any type of specificity that is helpful outside of somebody using it as a specific tool to add in their own narrative and control, right? And, and this is what most charismatic teaching i mean most christian teaching in general in my opinion but especially you know charismatic teaching tends to just be this kind of like vague emotional quote-unquote teaching right big air quotes that is just meant as a tool to validate something right because again i i could i could use the terms evil and good and very specifically define evil done to people who were doing good in the context of how people are treated within the church and i'm sure that he would disagree with that assessment right but because right. he makes no assessment of the specifics it's just it's just manufactured to be manipulative it's like there's no there's no way i can read this without feeling like this is simply a tool to hand to somebody to manipulate somebody with yeah Uh, yeah because even just that yeah i i could identify with david so i'm like okay so we're talking about david king and you got all this big stuff going on big stuff was going on in david's life john bevere are you whatever was happening to you was it was it that big and then how does that compare to, yeah, the woman in an abusive relationship or me in my workplace 
or my ancestors in slavery? Like, how do these things compare? Like, again, because you're not being specific about your situation. So now you're elevating whatever you were going through to what was happening to David. And yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's trying to minimize, you know, whatever little church hurts he thinks people have. But like this book doesn't just live in the church and to get people to be quiet here, you have to quiet them down everywhere. And so again, this is, this is so dangerous because you're not, you're not being specific. So you're not saying, yeah, this is, this is exactly what happened to me. And at this level, forgiveness is, yeah, it's easy. Or maybe it's not easy, but, but it's doable because I did it. It's like, I don't know, I don't know where I fit in this scale, John, because I don't think there is a scale. Not that rough things haven't happened to John Bevere, but like coming out of this, I'm like, I think you've had a very soft life. Like if the worst things that are happening to you are that you are being abused by people in the ministry, join the club, my man. Like, yeah. We're all living at that base level and then we have other stuff going on. And so I just, I don't know. I'm like, just cry me a river, John. I don't. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think too, like he, he, in the intro of the book, he, he pretty specifically kind of like aligns his words with the word of God. Right. I mean, he says something in the very first, the first sentence of the preface or something like this book holds <laughs> You guys, I'm sure I've talked about this on other episodes, but this this book you hold is quite possibly the most important confrontation with truth that you'll encounter in your lifetime. What a fucking claim. Like, oh, my God. And and then let's give you vague examples. Let's say that from the start. Right. So that we position ourselves or you know this text as the most important confrontation with truth that you'll ever face in your lifetime then give you a bunch of vague you know uh, uh examples and then propose solutions i mean if i could if i could find you know an actionable solution that he proposes in this chapter is fasting praying and praying for somebody else again without any specificity even if he was like, okay, fast for X number of days and then do this specific thing, even that, I still would have been like, that's ridiculous. But even his even his his proposed solution is vague. And then you're left with kind of the idea that the solution for yourself is not to necessarily even feel any better because again he kind of continues to perpetuate this idea that you're going to feel this pain and this exclusion and this hardship without some type of you know what's what's divine intervention right until god until you pray enough or fast enough or whatever and then god divinely will change you and then you can feel more at peace of it the real solution here that he's proposing is for the the work to continue Right. And so it kind of trains people to go like, okay, well, if I can just put myself in a position to be abused, if I can pray enough, I will get peace about that abuse. And the the validation that that was the correct move is that this whole thing continues to move forward. Right. Like that is like a textbook recipe for like 
how to start a cult, <laughs> you know, like, like, like if you were like, Hey, how do I do this effectively? Is like, if you can get your followers to, to do that exact thing, that's how it's done, you know? And so, yeah, it's, it's, it was frustrating <laughs> to read. <laughs> say the least but yeah it's the yeah the, the praying the fasting and then yeah the praying praying for the person and so he gives that that example yeah the lord instructed me to pray for the man who had hurt me so i prayed at first it, and it was in a dry monotone voice without a hint of passion <laughs> so it's like so it's not even enough that you're you're doing this but now god needs me to like feel something about this like i need god needs me to have all this this passion about this and then i mean the whole the whole book i'm like john's view of god like god god is is mean why does why does god need to use all these awful things to do whatever it is he wants to do in me and you and us very much like what you posted that idea of you're gonna get abused out in the world so why why not come into the church yeah you're gonna get abused there too why, why, why are you not expecting that? It's like, why, why do, it's like two for the price of one. I don't want it. I don't want one. <laughs> like, why? The, the abuse is justified because it's leading to some type of external, you know, kingdom work or whatever, you know? And I also think it was interesting that he framed the guy as being both this guy who, you know, in this particular example he gives, he's like, to, to paraphrase, he's like, this guy was kind of an ass. And apparently his associates, who he never really, you know, names were kind of a dick to apparently to him. But he still kind of frames the guy as a, a brother, fellow churchgoer, you know, and that's the type of person I, you know, I would love to like hear what the teaching would be from him on like somebody who is not as, you know, kind of like whitewashed and, you know, kind of decent as he paints his offender out to be, right? How does the church, how does somebody like John Bever treat somebody who is outside of his circle outside of his way of thinking because to me that's the way more relevant question that people are actually facing right i mean in general we don't need a fucking book to know that people who we are generally aligned with we should work things out with that happens pretty naturally so you know if this guy is like a a Muslim arms dealer or something. And he's like, here's how I made, you know, peace with this person. Then I'm like, okay, you've got something to say here. The fact that you, you know, got along with some guy who's probably tithing in your church and you were able to move past it as his pastor. I mean, what do you want me to do? Clap for you? I mean, <laughs> way to go, I guess. But you know, this didn't take divine intervention. That's just being a basic, decent human being. Right. He's also writing right. this from a position of power, right? Like he's not in a church situation where he is not the person of power or at least up there with the people of power. And so that's another thing where it's like, again, we have people writing uh, about these topics from a position that they were never – that they have no perspective on right. at all. Anyway, because right, podcast is just being like, raging. As it as it should be. Yeah, because I'm looking back and I'm like, who who was again? No, no details, so we'll never know. But I'm like, was this a parishioner? He only writes about people who have some kind of power. Like these aren't these aren't regular people. This is not someone in this congregation. I'm like, if he's 
he's associating with this person. This person has associates. I'm like, no, this is either somebody who's on his level in ministry or above him because he just does not deal with people who do not have power. <laughs> if we were in his church, there is nothing you or I could say or do that would bother John Bevere. Like, mm-hmm. he'd yeah. be like, get, get to step in, get out. And therefore, there's no impetus for him to make peace or overcome his offense, right? And that's what makes this such a crock of shit because it's like that is actually what might be helpful, right? But when you have a, a, a motivation to make peace with somebody because you are in, you know, whatever, you know, power dynamic relationship, then again, we don't need a book to tell us how to do that. Right. Right. But that's such that's such a good question. Like how does this apply to yeah, people who are not in your church? Like how are you dealing with the guy who keeps I don't know, putting his trash in your trash can, John, like who's not not coming to your church, doesn't care about your God. Like, how does this relate to people who you can't beat over the head with this book, who are never going to read this book? Mm. Like, this is it's like extra homework. It's like coming into the church with so much extra work, because, yes, on top of whatever I'm dealing with outside, I'm going to come into the church and it's going to be just as bad, if not worse, because now, for whatever reason, God has to use these people in this place to work out all the stuff he wants to work out. And he only seems to know how to do it in a negative way. It's like, why is the church not the best place on earth? Why is this not the place you come to be loved and to, and to have good things happen to you? It's like, no, God's, God's got to work it out. And it's going to be hard on you. And it's going to hurt. It's going to be bad because we serve a good God. Like, What? Yeah, but that's I mean, that that's the whole tone of the way I was brought up is this fetishized masochism that says the more you hurt, the more God, you know, is going to use you, you know, Uh, but it's not practiced at the top levels. I can tell you (laughs) from experience uh, that is only a bill of goods sold to people down downstream. Right. With the with the kind of inference being that, yeah, you're going to go through it down here. And so when you get to the top, it is because you have ascended, you because you have done well here. And so you need to listen to us here at the top because we're up here because, I mean, we basically we won the game, right? Like we are we are what you are trying to be. So, yeah, just deal with it. The fact that we're in this position says that we have attain some level of of something and it's so crazy now outside of it all to look back and go oh my gosh like we were giving so much authority so much respect so much honor to people literally just based on their position with no questions about how they got there no questions about what kind of credentials experience what kind of person are you actually it's just like oh no i see you in this position and we're giving this position so much respect and so much, yeah, just authority based on absolutely nothing. Yeah, 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 it's wild. And so then he says, yeah, this is my favorite part. Recovery is your choice. Some people get hurt and never recover. As cruel as this may sound, it was their choice. And that was one of those moments where I'm like, this is, a man wrote this. Absolutely. Because, yeah, John, that is cruel. If you don't recover, 
That's your choice. I don't know what to tell you. I wrote a whole book, and I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you chose that. That is wild. I think, you know, something that you you have said on, I think you said it on my podcast. I think you've said it multiple times on your podcast. I know that you said it on the DRCK podcast, but this this victim and villain concept, you know, the way people like John Bevere and everybody, everybody who currently exists in the Christian church power structure, the way that you are brought up, it it sets you up to victimize other people because it it is the only way to justify why you are there. Because I think somebody like him looks around and goes, you know, again, you know, how am I here and somebody else isn't? It must be because I chose. And no better way to get somebody to accept the ludicrous privilege that they're given than to convince them that it was their overcoming that got them there and not to justify at all that position but i truly do think people in these positions believe that about themselves and i think that that inherent belief makes them incapable of actually having functional empathy for anybody else and that's why the book is just not helpful because it doesn't actually, again, you know, you look at it, I'm not, you know, particularly a Jesus person anymore, but like the the basis of kind of the Jesus message and the entire kind of early Jewish understanding was written from a position of lack of power and disadvantage and marginalization and was a message of liberation and this perspective flips that upside down and completely ignores it. And that's why I look at it now and I'm like that that like literally the opposite of 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 this is probably closer to what I might consider the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, I think a a big part of why I walked away from God was because I actually I wanted God to be better better than he seemed to be. I'm like, I can, you can tell me anything. I can believe anything. I just need it to make sense. And so God is all powerful, all all loving, omnipotent. Okay, I can believe that. But then I can't believe that that God needs needs bad stuff to happen and needs to do bad things to me, needs to use bad things to, to get through to me. I can't believe that. And so a lot of my, yeah, a lot of my struggles were just coming to that place where you're like, am I? Am I more moral than God? These things that I care about and that bother me and God doesn't seem to be bothered by it. Yeah, you kind of have to kill kill a lot of your empathy. Like a lot of things just suddenly have to be okay. Like you have to be okay with that. And so it just, yeah, it dulls, it dulls those senses in you. Like it, it kills something in you. And I think like that's that's where a book like this comes from. You can't you can't afford to have empathy for other people because as soon as you do, you're gonna have a lot of questions that you're not gonna be comfortable with. Yeah. 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 And so to ascend and to to be in power, to be to be at the top, yeah, there is just this kind of intrinsic belief that 
well i mean i'm here i'm doing god's work god god is pleased god ordained this so i did the right thing and i'm doing the right thing and i'm right about i'm right about these things and these people just need to listen to me and i don't know i'm like i don't know how long you can legitimately believe that without being a psychopath so then i'm like do you I don't know. You just get so comfortable and you have, you have the money, you have the power and that's not easy to give up. And so it's like, then are you just playing a part at some point? And you're just like, well, I mean, it works for me. So might as well, might as well keep going. And because you've never been, definitely never been in the position I I'm in that I was in. Yeah. It's easy to be like, well, yeah, I had my little hurts. I had things that happened to me and I got over it and I'm fine. So they should get over it and they should be fine. Fine too. And if they're not, well, that's just God working some stuff out. And that's, that's on them. Yeah. I think the way that, the way that he describes his, his, I guess, coming to terms with his experience of God is, is relatable to me in the way that I've come to terms with my experience without God. (laughs) And I think that it's interesting that it's, it is, I think in many people's lives and I don't want to be prescriptive of everybody, but, but there is a, a desire to align our view, our perspective. And he does it in the preface, right? These words that I write are the word of God. I mean, he says some ballsy shit, right? Uh, it, 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 it allows you to go like, okay, I'm giving myself over to God, but ultimately it's yourself. Right. And ironically, giving myself over to not God really was giving myself fully over to myself in what I find to be a really pure way. And to me, I tend to feel like we probably land me and John Bevere in similar places in terms of how we feel about ourselves in that position. Right. So then we have to ask ourselves, what then is the byproduct of that, right? If you land aligning yourself with your kind of prescriptive view of God and, and aligning, what is the, what's the output? And for me, I had to look at myself and go, the output was largely, when I was in that position, pain and suffering and hurt and abuse, etc., and and since leaving, since aligning myself on this other side, the output has been a lot of healing uh, and been a lot of, uh, for lack of a better churchy word, good fruit <laughs> that's come out of it. Uh, and and so there's this double speak that I think that goes like, you align yourself here, you feel okay, but then also the byproduct is going to be bad for other people. But that is because of, again, the enemy or their choice or whatever it is, rather than taking responsibility for the fact that the way in which you are resolving your interactions with other people in alignment with this person of God you believe in is being destructive. So so at the end of the day, it's almost impossible to get out of it. Because you can go like, look at what's happening as a byproduct of what you're doing, all the certain pain. Oh, well, that's the enemy. I feel fine. Well, I feel fine over here. 
the output of what I'm what I'm doing seems to be a lot of healing and a lot of uh, people getting in therapy and people working through their shit and people like uh, uh, actually addressing some of the trauma in their lives, etc. Uh, but again, anybody who's in it and having a hard time, it's the enemy. And anybody who's having out of it and having an okay time, they're also deceived by the enemy. I mean, you know how many people tell me like you think you're happy, but you're not actually happy, and it's like, well, then I don't know what to tell you, man, because, like, I mean, like, I don't know what to tell you other than I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely happy. I'm not like you know, you know, perfect happy, but I'm, I'm genuinely more fulfilled. And if you want to tell me that's the enemy, I don't know what to tell you, man. Yeah, and everything moves in stages, and so I. You know, think, and I think now I'm not as I'm not as creeped out by happiness. But like, I think initially I was like afraid of happiness, and it's like, no, this is oh, this you feels and me too both. good. You it and me can't both. be right. It's like, oh, this feels too good, so it can't be good. And now it's like, how crazy is that that you're going to say, here's this good God. This God is all good. There's no no shadow or turning in him, right? Like no darkness in God. God is all light. God is all good. But God is going to do bad things to you. And the enemy, who is all evil, there's no good in him, is going to give you good things to make you think, you know, things are okay. I'm like, why Why would God not do the same? Like, what? how does it benefit God to treat people awful, to, like, make them prove their love? Like, if you're yeah. a good God, just, just be good to people. That would be the most compelling thing, right? Like, that's... That's what people are chasing. That's what we're after. It's like, why? that That's an abusive relationship. Yeah, I've got good things and I could give them to you, but you need to prove how much you want it. It's like this. That's crazy. That is crazy. Yep. And if that's your God, you can have him. That's fine. You can have yep. him. But I, I don't want him. Not for now. Definitely not for an eternity. So, yeah, you know. yeah. Yeah, and this idea that 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 we operate in this way for this short period of time where we have limited cognitive ability to be able to perceive anything close to objectivity and yet oh we're going to we're going to die and then everything's going to it's going to be the opposite, right? It, like, you know, all of us who you know, perceived to have found healing or life or, you know, freedom from shame, etc. We're instantly going to just like be miserable and tortured and burned alive. And then everybody who I see struggling with trying to align their theology with their lived experience is just instantly going to have all the good. It's it. It feels I mean, it just feels ludicrous when you start really looking at it and talking about it. And with on top of that, when you when you look at how those in power use this narrative to perpetuate cycles of shame and abuse, it becomes even more convincing to me that it can't be true because of be because of that, because I see how it's used to perpetuate pain. So and and because I was in a cult, so I understand how that brainwashing at a, at a significant level works you know yeah it's unbelievable which was kind of proof to me that it was like oh we're not original sin and total depravity and just being born bad if it was true churches wouldn't exist because nobody would put up with this stuff but i'm like people want so much to be good and to be part of something good that they will tie themselves in knots to make it make sense but it doesn't make sense like, yeah well, especially when people from birth are convinced that they're garbage. Right. You know, 
Right. Which if we truly were garbage, then we wouldn't care. We'd be like, awesome. That's what I am. That's what I was meant to be. And I'm having a great time. Yep. Yep. So you asked me why why he wrote this book. Turn the question back on you. Who is who is this book for? I, I mean, I would say based on the chapter I read, the introduction and preface that I read, I think this book is for people who want to be convinced of their own conclusions and and made to feel like they have made some sort of transformation um, when in reality, and it's funny, I was, I mean, the, the narrative I was told was, you know, what's the word? Repentance? You know, people talk about, you know, repentance and transformation and the renewing of the mind. And they would talk about, you know, how it's uncomfortable and it doesn't make sense and it's backwards and it's it's made to get you out of your comfort zone. And it's not something that that comes naturally, but it, it yields all, all of the way that I was told that that works has been my experience of deconversion. That's that it's been uncomfortable. It's been tough. It's been challenging. But I've really, in many ways, had to transform my mind. I've had to repent of my way of thinking, right? Like anyone who, you know, categorizes or characterizes ex-evangelicals, ex-Christians, you know, the deconverted as these people who just like loosely flung off, you know, the constraints of, of religion. That's not how it works. It's this really difficult and life-giving process that I've been going through. This, to me, is the, the, the fake version of that. I want to read something that's going to reiterate my perspective, is going to give me vague enough theology to associate with what I already believe, and convince me that I've had some sense of transformation without ever making me actually think critically about anything. And that is a powerful tool in the hands of powerful religious leaders. Oof. All right. So looking, <laughs> looking at I this think. book from the, that's, I think you're spot on. So looking at it from the perspective, everything is permissible. Everything is allowed, but not everything is beneficial. So on a scale from one to 10, 10, it's beneficial, beneficial for everyone. Five, it's there, it's permissible, it's not doing anything, it's just there. Down to one, this book is not beneficial at all, it is harmful, and it is harmful for everyone. Where would you put this book? Um, I would put it, I would put it at a two. And I, I, I think the reason I would put it at a two and not as a one is it's vague enough. I could probably teach this book and turn people using this book into affirming queer loving agnostics <laughs> it's that vague you know i think it's all about how it's used at least from the little bit that i read um so yeah in the right very very intentional hands um maybe it wouldn't totally fuck you up but but i would say eight times out of ten it would you taking this book and using it for that would be john Favier's nightmare <laughs> <laughs> i would love to do that maybe someday so John Bevere shows offense as the bait of Satan. And then my man's has been platformed, been everywhere. So if you could choose an issue as the bait of Satan, you get to go into every church in America and make them confront one issue. What is that issue? I believe it would be 
I don't know. I don't know the right way to say it, but I would. I would say it has something to do with. Uh, I guess supremacy. I think supremacy would be the issue that is most plaguing Christianity. Yeah. I was gonna say certainty, but I think supremacy is a better is a better way of saying it. They are certain that their position is supreme. Yeah. And 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 coming to terms with that reality is the beginning of real change. Yeah, I could see yeah, just the changes, the changes that could bring, the thoughts thoughts that would bring compared to offense. Night and day. Worlds yeah. worlds apart. I'm offended at how much supremacy has affected especially the white evangelical church and i'm not trying to get unoffended about it (laughs) and i support that (laughs) good deal i too i align with the enemy in (laughs) supporting your offense (laughs) cool awesome awesome we'll hang out here in this trap together i like it i'm I'm having a great time awesome (laughs) so we're not recommending this book to anyone. Nope. Maybe not the trash without a can, strong rewrite. It. Right. <laughs> so, what is something you would recommend? A book. Anything. Oh man, so many things. I guess. I guess the 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 thing that I would recommend would be the question that I felt I was never allowed to ask until my deconversion experience. And it's been the question that just like continued over and over and over again in my mind and has been a part of my journey for the last few years. And that is, what do you want? I think I think we're not told we're allowed to ask, what do I want? And actually, I feel like if you ask most people, if most people ask themselves, what do I want? The answer is 99.9% of the time, barring, you know, legitimate psychopaths <laughs> they're good things right you know i want to see people healed i want to see people people healthy i want better relationships i want more love in my life i want whatever it is but we're not told we're allowed to ask it so i would say you can skip this whole book and answer the question for yourself what do you want and you'll probably be farther along the journey towards a more fulfilled life because odds are you have the answers i guarantee you have more answers than than john Bavere does. And that, that is one to grow on. And that's beautiful, beautiful advice. So yeah, I'm gonna leave that there. You have any, any final thoughts, any? Nope, nope, that's, that's, that does it. Thank you, Janice, so much for having me be a part of this project. It's always good to get to hang out. Let's do it more often. And in closing. Peter put it so well. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. 1 Peter 4, 12-13 Notice that he compares the extent of suffering to the extent of rejoicing. How can you rejoice to that extent? When his glory is revealed, you will be glorified with him. This glorifying is to the degree that you allow him to perfect his character within you. So don't look at the offense. Look at the coming glory. Hallelujah. If I had to sum this chapter up with one word, that word would be exhausting. John Bevere and his severely bad, Bevere sad theology is so tiring. It is so much work and for what? At the end of this chapter, I wrote, if the fiery trials are being brought by other Christians so that we're all spending our time exercising to forgive each other, what good are we doing in this world? How does any of this help? 
And who is John Bevere to offer any of this advice? This man has no credentials in anything real when it comes to dealing with mental health. So just on that basis alone, if I knew nothing else about him, I would be skeptical about him writing a book that is quite possibly the most important confrontation with truth you'll encounter in your lifetime. If any idiot could write this book, then any idiot could have written this book. And if I were God, I would have chosen a better idiot. How is this dude gonna advise me on what I should feel when he was too stupid? too stunted, too emotionally inept to recognize that he was hurt. And this is where I'm going to re-reference my personal belief that privileged cishet white men should not be writing books for, about, or to anyone but privileged cishet white men because their perspective is severely, severely limited. Their advice is only useful to themselves and barely that. This dummy, by his own admission, walked around for months in need of divine revelation from God to realize that he was hurt. But I'm just supposed to believe that he knows more about me when it comes to properly handling offense? There was an incident in the evangelical deconstruction community a little while ago. There was a photo posted that was celebrating life and liberation beyond purity culture, but the photo was visually very lacking in representation. And so when women with features and body types not represented in the photo were like, hey, this feels a lot like the same kind of exclusion we experienced in the spaces y'all are saying you're different from, it kicked off a bunch of discussions about who's more healed. And it was like a light bulb moment for me as far as this other fact of supremacy, where we give the people who have been through the least the most credit for knowing how to heal. So there were white and white passing women in the photo congratulating themselves for being healed enough not to be bothered by the lack of representation instead of critiquing themselves for being psychopaths. I'm kidding, that's harsh. Kinda. But if you were in a space where other people were being wounded, where harm was being done, if it was an unhealthy environment, then it was unhealthy for everyone. Let's go back to JB's example about the dog in the scalding water. Remember that? If I was there when that dog was being scalded, what kind of damage does that do to me to see something like that? And what does it say about me if I see that dog later somewhere else still flinching and I'm like, I'm fine, so what's wrong with him? But that's what John Bevere does for this whole book. He says, I'm fine and I'm the standard, so you should be too. But as far as we know, 13 chapters in, the worst thing that has ever happened to John Bevere is a knee injury that had nothing to do with church. That is the only injury he spells out definitively. But when it comes to offense, the injury this book is supposed to be about, he says, an incident occurs. And he says it's an extreme offense, but because he is so vague, so weak sauce, and so emotionally stupid, I don't know what's extreme to him. Is it someone saying, good to see you, without really meaning it? Or is it his brother sexually assaulting his sister and his father doing nothing about it? Hashtag Team Absalom. And whatever it is, what is the ultimate point? What does John Bevere's God want from us? Because it seems like he wants us, needs us to be wounded by his people, but to not feel anything about it until he reveals to us what we've not been feeling about it. JB compared being offended to his knee injury that he got from being out of shape. So I'm supposed to be exercising my offense muscles by being offended and not feeling anything about it to build up for bigger offenses, all of which are coming from other Christians on order from God? So is that what my entire Christian life is about? Watching other people do awful things and feeling nothing about it? This chapter is eight pages long. The word offended is used twice. The word offense is used 14 times. The word offensive does not appear, but it is ever present and embodied by the mere existence of this book. I just, I, I don't, un what, 
why, why is this book? Is it a prank? Who dared John Bevere to write the world's most useless book? And can you call it off now? This chapter has eight scripture references, which is way less than usual, but still way too many. And man, what a fever dream this book is. I cannot believe how bad it is. And I just, it, it makes me sad. But hey, we've got one chapter left. Maybe he'll pull it all together. <laughs> anyway, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bad Book Club. I certainly hope you had a better time listening to this episode than I did reading that chapter. This book is a never-ending press conference being held in front of Four Seasons Total Landscaping. Everyone involved should be embarrassed and ashamed. If you are enjoying this podcast, please remember that sharing is caring. Tell your friends, leave us a review on Apple, and remember to show love to my guests. Hit the show notes for info on where and how to find, follow, and support them, and to check out the links to better things than the bait of Satan. Feel free to hit me via my email, DMs, the comment section on Instagram if you have any thoughts, comments, questions, and that's it for now. I am Janice Legata, and this has been an episode of Bad Words, but here are some good ones. From The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield We know that if we embrace our ideals, we must prove worthy of them, and that scares the hell out of us. What will become of us? We will lose our friends and family who will no longer recognize us. We will wind up alone in the cold void of starry space with nothing and no one to hold on to. Of course, this is exactly what happens, but here's the trick. We wind up in space, but not alone. Instead, we are tapped into an unquenchable, undepletable, inexhaustible source of wisdom, consciousness, companionship. Yeah, we lose friends, but we find friends too, in places we never thought to look. And they're better friends, truer friends. And we're better and truer to them. Do you believe me?